chasing the hunt and I set the pace when I'm running. I always take what I want and I always give it 100. Don't need a bank, no, I'm funded. Play the game like it's nothing. I'm always thankful for something. Don't take for granted. Hey, hey. Hello, everyone. I always ask you, Pedro, how are you doing? Should I do this again today or should we chase the start? Hello. I think, yeah, I can ask you, how are you, Marta? <laughs> Um, okay, I wish it was warmer here, but uh, I think Jim helps me to push through the darkness and coldness. Yeah, so you've, you've, joined the, you've joined the gym recently, right? Yeah, after a long break, but I'm very happy. All Look of the you. endorphins are back in. So you are trying, <clears throat> so you have like a New Year's resolution, right? <laughs> no. Before, <in> the <laughs> it's not going to work. No, this one, I'm not going to call the resolution because you know how it works. You never mm -hmm. fulfill them, so... I'll try to keep it as a habit, but let's see. Yeah, sometimes I do, but yeah. <laughs> but yeah, talking about sports, I'm very excited today because we have a quite special guest who is a professional athlete, and we're going to introduce him shortly. Um, I'm never going to reach his level at the gym, but well, <laughs> <laughs> trying. So we have Steven Benedict with us today. And as I already mentioned before, he's a professional athlete, but he's a professional track and field athlete. And he ran in some of the most prestigious events, including also Olympics. Uh, he was featured in over 50 national and international magazines, um, such as Men's Fitness, Men's Health, Fitness R, and many more. But his expertise and contributions uh, extend far more, far beyond the track as well. He is an author of the book called Good Morning Superstar and a founder of Fostering Success, which is a nonprofit organization that restores hope, encourages growth, and opposes the abandonment mindset of foster children by providing genuine guidance and opportunities. Um, he's also a speaker, a coach, and overall a man of many talents. Uh, but I think he will tell us more about himself in a minute. Uh, hello, Stephen. Welcome to the show. Hi, Martha, Pedro. Uh, thank you very much for having me on uh, today. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank very you nice for you. being here. Um, when we are reading about you, we came across this quote that goes like, why race? They need to be tested, perhaps. They need to take risks and the chance to be number one. Is it something you identify with? Yeah, yes, without a doubt. I think, I think everybody has their own individual race. I think life is a race, um, and I think we're running it at different paces, and we all have our own individual finish lines. Uh, so, uh, and then obviously correlation for me, you know, being on the track, uh, you know, transitions right over to life for me as well. Uh, you know, not only has, I feel like my, my life race has been very vast and very long, but a very short period of life thus far. So. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, is that something, is there something I missed in your introduction? Maybe that you would like to add? Because you have probably a lot of things to talk about. <laughs> but before we uh, move on, maybe that's something you'd like to add. No, I think you covered pretty much everything. You know, my my two most uh, passionate areas to speak on right now are the health and wellness space of human optimization, of longevity, and just performance and cognitive and social emotional learning, but then also the opposite end of foster care, foster care reform, and family in-house kind of uh, conversations happening in the home and, um, you know, that whole growth period. Mm -hmm. When uh, we read through your story, I think um, there was a very clear pattern of like how your life started and everything that happened in your early age through a career and basically what you did with those experiences. And I think it's, it sounds like a very like coherent sort of entity. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about like, um, how did you start running? Like, how did it become such a big thing in your life? Uh, I think, you know, one, I was always very blessed with athletic capability. Uh, running was, just kind of something I enjoyed doing. It was just something I was naturally good at. Um, and it was never really on my radar to run track and field. My parents, my adopted parents pushed me into it. Um, my freshman year in in high school, I was on the football field. The, the track coach saw me on the football field 
and he approached my parents and then my parents my mother especially being the very affluent and bold woman she was uh was you know pushing her agenda and asking you know oh why don't you try this you know you've tried every other sport under the sun and i was going to actually do i was going to i was going to do wrestling my freshman year in high school but th- because I did my very first sport was judo. So I did judo for 10 years, which is very technical type of, you know, wrestling, but a little more technical and and martial arts. But so I decided to kind of succumb to that whole thing and, and go out for it. And my freshman year in high school, I wound up winning county championships and kind of just kept on building after that and found out that I had an inkling for it. But then I was also blessed in the space that I had a good coach and I had a good group of guys I was running around. So in high school, I got to really see and get my a broader vision of what the track and field world was like. So I was able to run in some world meets when I was in high school and international meets. So I was very lucky because not a lot of you know high school athletes are able to see that broad of a picture Mm. at such a a young um, athletic age. And if you don't, it kind of, you know, it doesn't give you the full picture of things and doesn't give you the kind of like the horizon to push for. So did Mm. you enjoy it from the beginning or it was it gradually because you mentioned like you were interested in other sports at the beginning? Yeah, um, I enjoyed it. But it was definitely a build. Uh, if I look back on my high school career now, I was running uh, on a lot of natural talent. Yes, there was a lot of training put into it, but um, I the one thing that has built up over time that I really enjoy that I like is that it's a soul sport. It's really me on the track versus the clock. I mean, yes, there are other other athletes on the track, and you know you're running against other athletes, but ultimately, you know, you're running your own race, even in training sessions, you're running, you know, it's not a team sport. It's not like football, Mm. baseball, basketball, um, or, you know, any of those sports where there's a team reliance on, it's really much what you put into it, you get back from it. Um, Mm. But through high school, it was, it was a work in progress, right? You know, I was an athlete in high school, you're a good athlete in high school. So, you want to socialize and do all those things. Mm-hmm. So I look back at it now, I could have put uh, a lot more of a focused effort into it at that particular time. But again, I was, I think I was also trying to compensate and and catch up in my childhood years because I didn't have very much of a childhood. So it was kind of that kind of ebb and flow trying to f- uh, figure out my space. Yeah, I think that makes sense. That was one of the questions that popped in my head. Like, it must be very hard to pursue sports on a professional level as like a teenager, young adult, but also balance that out with like a social life and you're hanging out with friends and stuff. Do you, did you feel like when you look back, do you think do you think that you had to make a lot of sacrifices or do you think like you kind of managed both like social life and family life and everything? Or coming back, you feel like, oh, maybe I should have pushed sports more or maybe I should have pushed social life more? Uh, I think there's a balance there, but I think I could have sacrificed a bit more, but I also did sacrifice a lot too, uh, and put in the time and effort and stuff, but I did have a social life in some occasions, maybe too much of a social life on some Mm. spaces. Uh, so I think there was, I think as I got into my latter years of my high school career, I got more serious and focused on it. The early, uh, you know, freshman, sophomore year was kind of still finding myself. And, uh, but then when I was starting to really develop, my coach started to really take time and effort and, you know, kind of speak into me. And um, I don't even think that really hit until like my freshman year in high school and in college. Uh, mm-hmm. That's when I was really, um, really starting to focus and really starting to um, develop the skill sets and get better coaches around me, you know, cause there was a ladder 
of coaches that I had come across and each one was different in their own approach. Um, just the early, the early years probably was probably could have used a little more sacrifice if, if, if I'm being not too judgmental myself, but yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think all of us are looking back and be like, but well, yeah. it's quite hard. <laughs> um, <laughs> did you like at this time, like growing up in high school and like college, did you have any sort of inspiration? It could be a runner or a coach that was pushing you forward, or it was just something like an internal motivation that I just wanted to be better and kind of like every day be better than yesterday and things like that. Mm, I don't know if I had a single motivation or a single inspiration in that space. It didn't have any like, I mean, there were athletes that I watched and athletes that I looked at, but for me to have a single entity of like, hey, I want to be like them or anything, I didn't really, I didn't really have that piece. I think it was more of a piece of trying to make up for past time that I felt like I lost and I was trying to always be better or, and I was always and continue to do so now is that I'm always trying to excel myself or to always trying to refine things. And one of my main focus too is, you know, being a good person overall, but also honoring my parents and trying to really honor the second chance that I feel like I was given um, coming from where I came from. And, and that's why I'm always kind of on the grind and trying to do better. Like, I think my one of my biggest downfalls is that there's never enough for me, right? I'm, mm. I'm always like, I, I want more. Like, you know, if, if, I'm, if I'm running fast, I want to know how I can run that much faster or tenths of a second faster and try to keep incrementally. And that can be a, a crutch and it could be, um, you know, it could be a blessing. It could be a curse at a lot of times because you don't get to, you don't sit and kind of revel and, you know, pat yourself on the back in the meantime and say, Hey, you've come this far. Mm. Uh, um, you know, take the time to, uh, you know, really appreciate the small wins. Um, so yeah, in that sense, I didn't really have, I didn't really have a lot of mentors or a lot of, uh, people I really looked up to. I think, I think that came from my childhood and I think it was more mm -hmm. of a self-awareness thing and self-preservation type of, uh, you know, way of living. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You, you've mentioned a couple of times your childhood and it would be interesting to, if you want to talk a little bit about it, like Can you give us to the listeners like a summary of your childhood? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I was at four months, I was put into foster care um, due to neglect and, you know, just unstable situations. Then I was put back into my mother's hands and then my brother was born and we're two and a half years apart. And we were living in a motel rooms and very unstable situation. She was with another, another boyfriend at the time who sought fit to abuse us whenever it was feasible for him, took out a lot of anger out on us. I was hospitalized um, at a very young age. And then my grandparents found out about it. And then, you know, them being there elderly, couldn't take care of two toddlers. It was just unsustainable. And so our next best option was to go back into foster care. We went back into foster care for about six years, moved up and down the East Coast from foster home to foster home, and then landed in a semi-permanent uh, home, which was the latter part of our foster care experience. And then we were blessed enough to be adopted at the ages of eight and six. And, uh, and uh, you know, that was kind of the turning point for us. And that was kind of when we had gotten our second chance on things and we were actually able to start living as kids at that point and not for me in my perspective not having to be a father figure for my brother um, mm. and to play a, a role that i was not prepared for or not suitable uh to even attempt to look at but things like um you know, environmental awareness for me built up very quickly. What was my surroundings? You know, who was I 
you know, who was I around? Trust was a big issue for us. So there was a lot of factors growing up very quickly and our childhoods were, mine was very accelerated. My brother's not so much because me being the oldest felt like I absorbed most of the things and kind of deflected and shielded from him. So yeah, that's kind of things in the short, that first half of that, you know, those first 10 years of life. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that, what, that sounds pretty intense. Yeah. So what uh, what do you learn from that experience? I mean, like, obviously it was a hard experience, but uh, do you think uh, that experience has made the man that you are today somehow? Like, uh, yeah. Attitude? Yes, without a doubt. There's, there's a lot of things that I've built up in that particular time that has laid the groundwork and the foundation of who I've become and also the learning lessons that I've learned along the way from that. But then there's also, you know, the negative side of things too, of, of understanding what trauma does to a child and having to work through that later on and continue to work mm. through that when you have certain things that come up. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of characteristics and a lot of life lessons learned. You know, some of the things, you know, I feel like I've built up a lot of resiliency Mm -hmm. You know, getting through situations, a lot of self-awareness, a lot of um, social emotional learning, um, you know, and, you know, trust some of the things on the opposite side. Trust was always a big thing for me, mm -hmm. you know, having to understand how to trust people and really understand that, you know, they were there for the good and they weren't there for the bad, um, you know, and um, having to be you know, a good listener for certain things. So yeah, there was, there's a lot of life lessons there that I had to learn very quickly at a very young age that I think a lot of people are still learning, you know, in their mm. adult. Mm. Uh, yeah. So like I said earlier, when we first opened up, I think everybody has their life race and mine just, I always feel like my life was always very accelerated. So, and even, even in anything I got, I, I do now, I feel like it's either I'm on I'm at a hundred miles an hour or I'm in a waiting period for it to go a hundred miles an hour. There's no okay. gray for me. Mm. Yeah. Um, so yeah. What is your view on the foster care system in general? And also, what advice would you give to families wanting to adopt or to foster a child? Mm. Well. The foster care system has a lot of brokenness in it. Uh, it is a very vast system with a lot of moving parts and it keeps evolving and getting bigger with more problems, with not a lot of solutions being put in place. And what I mean by that is that there's you know a lot of attempts to try to shift the foster care system for the betterment Uh, but the way in which things are approached, they're not really moving the needle. And so you take things like, um, just to scale a few things, yeah, the first space of how kids were placed were either in group homes where it was just a bunch of kids in a group home. There was no supervision or anything. It was just kids living with kids. There was no growing up. There was no, you know, tutelage of anything or, or guidance in any way. Um, that obviously didn't work. And that's where a lot of kids were pulled from for like things for like human trafficking. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of very re uh, receptive and, you know, vulnerable to that space. Then they moved into spaces of foster care and, you know, and foster care was under taken away from the family, uh, broken from the family and put into another placement of a, of a separate home where, you know, kids were, you know, several different kids were living under a different roof. Um, And the problem with that was, is that people started utilizing it almost as a business model. So if you look mm -hmm. at it from a, a standpoint where you know, one household could have anywhere from six to eight kids in there, and those kids were, and the person of that household was being paid $1,500 a month per each kid. Mm -hmm. Now that's quite mm -hmm. a lump sum of money uh, for one business. household. 
Yes, that is a business. And a lot of the money that was being allocated to that wasn't going to the needs of those kids. Mm -hmm. So again, that didn't work. And now their newest thing is kinship care. And kinship care has to do a lot with keeping the kids in the family line, moving them from immediate family to like aunts and uncles in the middle of the night. And while I understand the kind of lateral movement of that um, or the horizontal movement of that to kind of keep the families together when not breaking them apart, there's still access, easy access for the original families to get in touch with these kids. So there's no really healing going on in the immediate home of pre-intervention mm -hmm. for the families. So, and all of this money is being thrown at problems and like, I mean, the kinship care programs, I think maybe last year, or the year, year before there was something like, gosh, 14, $15 million thrown at that particular structuring and not a whole lot of resolution or moving the needle or, you know, involvement was happening on the back end. So, you know, some of the, the biggest spaces is like we, I feel like you, you need to segregate and segment the system down from pre-intervention to kids in foster care to aging out youth and attack mm -hmm. each one in its own individuality. And that's how you'll move the needle across the board by kind of pulling down on each beast by itself. Um, and as far as, you know, for answering your, the second part of your question is what advice do I give for people mm -hmm. who are looking to adopt one, first and foremost, educate yourself, educate mm -hmm. yourself on the situation, educate yourself on what it takes to become a parent in that space, because it's not having, it's not like your own children, right? It's not like you're having them from birth and you're able to groom and plant the seeds there and, and you know, lay a foundation for them. A lot of these kids coming from foster care have a lot of issues that need to be dealt with, um, whether it be trauma, whether it be coming from broken backgrounds, whether it be coming from parents with drug usage, mm -hmm. um, abusive backgrounds, there's a lot of trauma there and a lot of, a lot of ways to approach that. And not all kids are the same, uh, you know, and they handle it different. They bottle things different. Mm -hmm. They respond different. Um, some may be very calm in their approach and they may be very open to speaking and some may not be and be very belligerent and not very communicative. So education, get yourself around other foster families before you even get involved in that or get yourself around other community with uh, adoption, you know, so you can kind of take the temperature and feel what works for you and, you know, see if this is something you can commit to. And then even before you do that, maybe try out for, uh, try to be a foster parent first, mm -hmm. because foster parents isn't a permanent situation. So you can get into that and learn what the process is because it is a long drawn out process and it is a process that is they do a lot of background they do a lot of due diligence and that's appreciative you know because you are taking over and taking responsibility for another life so uh, it is important to have all those pieces and then after that, if that is the route that you decide to do, and that's you know something you're committed to, the household is the nucleus of everything. So the conversations mm -hmm. in the household have to be in a space in which, you know, you, and it's very hard nowadays. I understand there's a lot of stress, not only you know from life situations, but you know things that have been thrown at us in the past two years. Uh, uh, pandemics and, you know, um, finances and everything. Uh, so having a, a space in which these kids feel safe is super important because that's going to allow them to grow and open up more and to share and to be able to communicate their story and to know it's a safe space to, you know, that they're not going to get what they've had in the past of a result of maybe abuse or abandonment or anything like that. So yeah, there's mm -hmm. a lot, there's a lot in the space and there's a lot that goes into it. 
That's a good question because like I sometimes admit that, uh, well, I have a child of my own and some, at some point I wonder if it would be a good idea to try to adopt a child or to be a foster family. But yeah, like I understand also that it's not like uh, you can, one can imagine, right? That you like it's, you have to be really prepared because it's another kind of uh, thing. But yeah, I appreciate the answer because it's, it's helpful to know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as, as you said, it's not like one kind of mold fits all. Like we're talking yeah. about humans and what you said about this being a business model, like it's it's yeah, horrible. It I mean, I think everybody tries to believe that people are good, but there are some people that will use opportunities to for their own sake. And that's horrible that, you know, those kids have to pay the price for it. Um, could you tell us a bit more about the fostering success since we mentioned it already at the start? Yeah, sure. Uh, Fostering Success is an organization in development and continually evolving um, and continually uh, continually shifting with the tides of things. But we're very innovative in our approach to that. You know, and a lot of the things that I've said thus far is a one. I've been involved in so many organizations from speaking at gala dinners to being involved in events and just really been behind the scenes and at the forefront of things of understanding kind of models for organizations, nonprofits, and how they approach their allocation of money to the impact that they bring. And my, a lot of the conclusions that I've come across is that they're all doing the same thing. It's all a replicated model. And it's all the same, you know, raise funds and do an event here and which is all great and their hearts are in the right place, but it's not making any tangible change. Mm-hmm. So upon doing that for us and and thinking of our model is that there are a few different tangible differences in what we do and what we approach. One, we're very big on our mission statement and just establishing hope and establishing, you know, ground set of tangible changes for these kids and making impactable changes, being able to listen, listen to the problems and actually bring solutions to those problems. And then also having alliances. And the Mm -hmm. alliance piece is very important for us in the fact that it helps us to make those changes within the system, whether it be from reform, bill reforming, or whether it be uh, one of the spaces that we're very passionate about is the aging out youth. And it's a space in which it has been very overlooked because after a certain age, unfortunately, a lot of kids for adoption are looked at undesirable. Uh, because mm-hmm. they are older, they have a lot more baggage. And, uh, you know, it's just kind of the way of the world. People, they want a kid that is younger so they can kind of grow with them and develop them. Uh, teenagers are very hot, tough. And you add the layers of foster care and all that other stuff on top of being a teenager. You know, it's a, it's a tough situation. So one of our spaces, the one of our biggest passionate spaces is the is the aging out youth and that's all about grooming them and forming community around them and helping them build the skill sets in order for them to thrive in the big world. Right. Mm -hmm. And also have a community to set back on um, things like business development, resume uh, building, um, just finding out their passions uh, speaking into those things, having them part of mastermind groups, social emotional learning courses and things like that. And we do that because that's the tail end of things. These kids are ready to go out into the work world and try to find their and make their own footprint. And if they have a community behind them, they'll come back and rewater that community uh, and hopefully cause a downward waterfall effect down through the foster care system where it becomes less and less and less that they're staying in the foster care system longer, longer, longer. Right. Um, And that's one of the biggest things too, is that during their protectiveness under the end their you know, why they have the allocations and the funds under foster care that 
no organization is utilizing that, right? These kids are taken care of while they're in the foster care system. Then we need to utilize the, the funds that there are given to their growth, you know, like things like, you know, just a roof over their head and a bed to sleep in and food to eat. And then also developing their minds and their passions and their dreams. Uh, Cause a lot of them lose that. They, they lose the fact that, Oh, well, this is my life. I don't have much hope after this. I don't know mm-hmm. what I'm going to do. And the sad part is that statistically on the back end of that is that for aging out youth, 40% of them within the first three to four months are either homeless, they're incarcerated, they're involved in drugs, or they're they're sexually trafficked, or they're dead. Uh, and these are very real numbers and very real um, life situations for these kids. So that's one of our spaces, and that's one of the places, spaces we're passionate about and we're making some changes in. And, you know, we have some other big things on on the future for that. Uh, but as I said, we're always, we're always in alignment of growing and um, evolving and being able to shift and pivot. And our alliance piece is a piece of having several different spaces, whether it be faith-based tech or um, uh, uh, psychology, all inclusive on our panel so that we're getting pulls from each space and we use it as a conglomerate together as a nucleus to make a, a bigger impact across the board instead of just saying, hey, this is fostering success. There's another nonprofit and this is what we do. No, we have a team of people mm-hmm. who are passionate about the same thing and we're all going after the same initiative, whatever initiative that might be for that year, which we usually hold um, a yearly meeting at the beginning of the year and uh, have some really bright minds to be like, oh, well, this is the initiative I think we should try to attack this year. And that's what we do all year is just attack that one thing all year. And we see tangible change by doing that. That's cool. That's that's great. But the numbers you told us about are insane. Like you said 40%, right? Yeah, 40%. It's, it's crazy. And it just gets worse. Uh, and obviously, you know, with inflation and things going on right now and all these other kind of environmental factors, you know, they all affect, they all affect the, the bottom line is, uh, you know, and that's for everybody They affect the bottom line, but even more so for these kids is, you know, the essentials. Am I going to be able to keep a roof over my head? Am I going to have mm-hmm. a hot meal at night? And am I going to have a bed to sleep in? Like, those are the basics. Yeah. Plus, as you mentioned, like some of them are teenagers and it's already hard, but to add to it, like uncertainty, lack of support, no guidance in the future, like that, that's a lot. Um, I think we're going to jump back to sports topic, but I'm yeah. very grateful you shared this with us because we didn't know, we're not from like from the US as well. So we don't know how things work there, but we would like to jump back to sports for a little bit. And, mm. and so we heard and saw that you qualified for Olympics as well. Mm. And could us yeah. could you tell us how much you remember from Olympics, <laughs> or was it just a blur because you were so exciting and so much so many things were happening? Um, so how was the whole experience for you? It was it was uh, very overwhelming. There was a lot of you know outside kind of distractions going on, but I mean the buildup was the buildup was tough at that particular time and but I had a lot of family situations going on on the back end um so I was kind of battling two different things and unfortunately when I got to the first round I wound up tearing my hamstring and I couldn't run you know post that but you know the experience was amazing um and I had to take off several years to recuperate, um, mm. you know, was with a different coach, but it was amazing. And, you know, I'm blessed to be, you know, have been part of that. And now I'm uh, on the tail end of that healthier than ever and training for my last Olympic games for the Paris games, um, which will be in 2024. Um, That's good. super excited. Um, I'm in great form right now and just moving along and, uh, have great coaches, very, um, some very, very 
detailed coaches on everything that we're doing. So I'm excited to set the bar higher than I was. Um, but you know, it's something that, you know, coming where I came from is, uh, is just, um, you know, it's bittersweet for me, but not the end. So I have a lot more to accomplish and I'm really looking forward to how things are unfolding right now. So What's the preparation cool. for, a, for an event like that, for Olympics? What, what's the preparation like, for instance? Because I can't oh. imagine. So let's say, so I run the, the 200 meters is my concentration. Mm -hmm. So you say <laughs> we're on the track for 20 seconds and I'm training about 30 hours a week for a 20 second race. So, <laughs> so that the, the, time, the, the time doesn't add up, but uh, it is a lot and it's just you know, very, very, you have to be very detailed on everything we do, like preseason, you know, um, mid season and, and, uh, you know, getting ready for race season and then peaking and all that stuff. That's just the, the track stuff and, uh, and the workout stuff. Then you have all the recovery stuff on the back end. So you have your nutrition and then you have, you know, seeing your doctors and being able to keep inflammation down in your body and mm -hmm. being able to get a good night's sleep and all those things. So it's a full-time job. It's, it's not just running. I mean, a lot of people have come across and like, Oh, so you run around in circles. Yeah. Like, no, not, not really, <laughs> not really. <laughs> and do you train the, the day before the, the race or, or do you rest or how, how does that work? Like, I know it's a silly question for someone like me, but did I train for, the, the day before the oh like the, the day before yeah um so i usually train so i'll go all the way up to maybe like i try to either get a day or two days off before i race um, mm -hmm. um just to get full recovery into my nervous system uh, it depends on how fast i'm recovering and that's kind of tested and found out based upon the the workload for the week that I've done or the, the previous two weeks. And we start having a taper down. So if we're like two weeks out from a race, that previous week will be the last heavy week. And then the next week will be a lighter week. And then the week of race week will be even lighter and more quality over quantity mm -hmm. type reps. Mm -hmm. So Okay. A serious question now. Can you have beer and like fries and burgers or your diet has to be like super clean, like pristine? Uh, for di for different parts of the season. One, I don't drink beer. I don't like beer. I just never had a palate for it. Um, okay. I do. I do like, like tequila and stuff. But, oh, um, tequila can't. is like healthy, right? <laughs> Ish. Yeah, tequila is healthy. You know? Um, <laughs> With some lime, but, that's extra vitamins. I yeah, think. lime, exactly. exactly. Um, uh, what did I have? Oh, I had in uh, Barcelona. I had um, uh, what what what's the alcohol they're famous for there? Um, uh, oh gosh, Barcelona. It's like a spirit, or yeah, like a spirit. It was um, uh, oh man, I forget. One of the tour guides that he took me on a uh, food tour, and. I had it chilled by itself and it was great. Uh, gosh, I can't remember the name of it. I'll think of it. Um, but <laughs> in answering that, yeah, our, our diets have to be pretty, pretty on point, especially if we're trying to hit a certain weight, like a weight to power ratio. Um, and, but there are times, you know, where we need to refill and we have our cheat meals and we, you know, have burgers and fry. like I eat meat, I eat red meat and, You know, when I feel like I'm dipping in energy, I'll throw red meat mm. in my in my diet, like have a hamburger or something like that in order to replenish myself. But, uh, you know, for the most part, I try to keep it pretty even keeled. Um, I, I don't really drink that much anyway. And if I do, I'm, I'm only good for one drink anyway. So, OK, <laughs> yeah, that's good. <laughs> um, do you have any like favorite race that you did and you were like that's my favorite one or all of them are your favorite ones or it's always a pain. Uh, I think, I think every, every race is different. You know, the venues are different. Uh, I, I like racing in Rome. 
um rome is great to race in uh i raced in Pordenone this past summer which was up north in italy which was a quaint little town that i didn't even know it was an international race up there and i raced there and it was really beautiful um you know i'm looking forward to racing in spain this year uh um raced out east a little bit further um went to uh japan um so it's great out there too every every venue is different they have their own culture and i think that's the biggest thing for me is that mm -hmm. i really love experience different uh, experiencing different cultures and submersing in that and just being able to travel and do that that is that's a real gift in the sport and being able to do that as um you know on especially when they pay for it is great so all the sushi in Japan for free. Yeah. Yeah. Well, sushi in Japan is different than the sushi that we're used to eating. So I, I know. Tell, yeah. Yeah. We need to go once yeah. and test it as well. Uh -huh. so. It's not that common, uh, apparently, sushi there, as far as I know. No. No, they have like like raw fish there. It's just like sashimi all yeah. the time. True. Yeah. Yeah. Our Western sushi is probably like whatever burgers for them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> okay, so I I saw that you wrote a book called Good Morning Superstar. Uh, can you tell us mm -hmm. a little bit about it? Sure. It was my fa is my first book out, uh, and it was just really kind of like some notes that I had compiling, and I got the idea of putting it into a book version of it, and basically. It's not, it's not about my story. It has no storyline in it. And it's more of a self-help 90-day book. Mm -hmm. So you do a chapter a day in it. Uh, and upon the, the left side of the page, there's a quote. And then on the right side, there are my thoughts on that quote. It was a quote that I actually read and then took some notes on whatever I was feeling in that particular moment, how I translated into my own words and and my thought process on it. And then there's two take action questions. There's, and the reason why those questions there are that I'm a big believer in that the better questions we ask ourselves, the better results we get. And I think that, you know, any successful person knows how to ask very good questions. Um, and they will get the answers that they are looking for. That's the person that doesn't ask the questions and just goes aimlessly into something, um, doesn't know why they're failing in things. But that's kind of the premise of the book. It's, it's to help you figure out your own thought process in certain things and also the aspects of doing it either first thing in the morning or last thing at night. Those two areas, like the first 20 minutes in the morning and the last 20 minutes at night are the most receptive for your brain to that's absorb mm -hmm. things. Uh, so that's why I usually do it in the morning when I first wake up uh, to set tone for my day and to set some initiatives for my day and to kind of put myself in the first, you know, I don't jump up and watch the news. I don't watch the news at all because there's mm. nothing but garbage on it. So uh, I have to be, especially this day and age, you have to be very, very careful about what you let into your subconscious and also what you let into your your frame because then you carry it around with you and, you know, who you speak to. So uh, it's, it's kind of like a self-preservation mechanism or additive to your day to help you push in the right direction. And the more you do it, the more of a habit you'll be able to start have to have in your own mind frame, in your own mindset, and to understand your own self-awareness and understand where your thoughts are going, if they're going the right direction, how to reel them in, uh, and how to keep things even keeled and keep your space mm -hmm. very calm. Uh, to be able to produce great results. Yeah, sounds very interesting. I want to put it on on the list of my next books to read. To be honest, and I recommend to the listeners yeah, also. It's very, yeah, it's a very easy read. Um, that's why I loved it. I, I made it like that. Uh, very easy, not taking time away from like anybody and everybody can read it. It's mm -hmm. not to like long chapters or anything. It's mm -hmm. very easy. You just kind of like 
an active reading type of mm-hmm. book. Uh, and um, the biography and all that will, is in the works that'll come out at a later date. But now, um, you know, so we're talking about that. But but yeah, uh, and the great thing about this book is that all the proceeds go towards uh, for, uh, helping out foster families. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah, I like I like how everything you're telling us is just goes like links together in a circle. Mm-hmm. Like everything True. you do, I think you're very like mindful about whatever you do in life. And I think I agree with you a lot that there is so much things going on around that is very easy just to get like way too much shit in heads, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then it's very mm-hmm. hard to clean it up and get a peace of mind. And what that is very important for you as an athlete, I assume, also just having a clear mind so you can perform well. Um, so we have a bunch of questions right now we need to pick two <laughs> we have <laughs> we have one for sure they're gonna ask you at the end and there is another one um and we need to see which one we should ask you i don't know Pedro. do you have any <laughs> the it's, ideas <laughs> it's, it's your turn <laughs> it's my turn hmm okay ask the silly ones already maybe we can ask something else okay we can maybe ask you what excites you these days and what drives you these days Hmm. That's a good question. Um, you know, I, I think right now the future excites me, uh, because I feel like I have a lot to accomplish, not only left in my athletic career, you know, but as far as taking what I've done so much, like it, it's very hard to try to have a full-time athletic career. And then also, try to build things on the back end, which can get kind of shifty at times and trying to get the right people around you. So I haven't been able to really dive into so much of the corporate world as much as I would have liked to. Um, and I think that those seeds are starting to kind of get planted a bit, you know, mm-hmm. as I push towards the latter part of my career. So I'm excited to shift and take what I've learned on the track and all of that due diligence of discipline and finding out self-awareness and all that stuff and transition it into something else of life, being able to impact more in that space and opening up that space because training takes a whole lot out of, out of my day, a lot. Um, so I'm excited about that. Um, yeah, I'm trying not to get too far ahead of myself i try to live a lot in the moment uh, which can get very hard too um but um i'm really focusing on that and really trying to make an impact and, and trying to be valuable um and trying to build out valuable assets for myself of you know quality assets that will bring help and change and serve other spaces well um, so yeah, I'm, I'm excited about what the future may hold and the opportunities that'll come in that space. Um, and then probably also being able to eat what I want to eat. <laughs> oh yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Um, okay. We asked our favorite last question for everyone, but we're going to rephrase it slightly because our guests hate the word advice. So mm. um, we'd like to ask you, what is, you have to pick one lesson you learned the hard way in your life that we'd like to uh, share with the audience. It doesn't have to be advice. It could be something that they should keep in mind or they can learn something from. Mm. Hmm. Well, I think the first thing that comes off my my head is comparison. Right. And I think, um, and this goes back to our opening statement about running races and, um, this, the quote that, you know, I have tied myself to a lot is being able to run your individual race and not comparing yourself to the person next to you or where they're, where they are at in their particular life race, uh, whether they're ahead or whether they're behind you. Uh, I think one of our biggest killers nowadays in society is that we're always comparing, um, whether it be culture, whether it be um, society status or um, whatever label we want to put to it. And that's why a lot of the 
turmoil and the um, problems we have have manifested because we're constantly comparing ourselves, whether they're not doing it the way we want it to be done, or they're doing it better than we're doing it. And mm. we don't understand why we're not progressing in the manner that we need to, that we want to progress, or we haven't seen the fruits of our labor in that particular, you know, area of life. And that has to do a lot with a lot of lacking patience. And if there's anything that I've learned is one comparison kills two without patience, you're not going to move forward. Um, mm. You have to have patience in the process and understand your process and understand you're right where you need to be for the things that you're meant to accomplish and to be able to run your race, stay in your lane um, and run the race model that best suits you. That does not mean alienate everybody around you. Um, that means take what works for you mold it for and be malleable to life and to be able to change and pivot because life is constantly changing around you. You have to be able to adapt as quickly as possible. So the comparison factor is huge. Um, and I think it's a killer of all dreams. Yeah. Thank you very much. I always enjoy what that all guests cool. share at the end of the chapter. It's very insightful. Yeah. Appreciate you guys having me very much today. Yeah, same. That's great. And I, he did the same thing again when you, we started from a quote and then we finished with a quote. I think I have a special talent to kind of link things together and put it in a nice frame. Very nice. I try to, yeah, I try I try to keep everything in alignment. Um, that's one of the biggest things that I'm very aware of, even on any projects and brands that I have, is that they're all they're all connected in some way. I'm not running off on tangents and running in a different direction that uh, they're either pieces of me or they're branches off of what I can speak into from life situations. And uh, I think, um, you know, that's important to do. Yeah, for sure. It was a pleasure to have you on. Um, we will link everything you want us to link in the episode. And we are all coming to Paris in 2024. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. I look forward to seeing all you guys. And um, yeah, I, I look forward to the episode coming out and sharing with everybody. Yeah. Thank, okay. thank you a lot and have a good time. Um, okay. Enjoy. Thank you. Have, have a nice day. <laughs> you too. <laughs> we'll get some sleep. <laughs> yeah, we'll go to sleep soon. <laughs> Bye. Nice to have you. Bye. 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 Always give it 100, don't need a bank, no I'm funded Play the game like it's nothing, I'm always thankful for something Don't take for granted, stay humble Now wake up, it's time to look at the enemy Look in the mirror, appears no friend to me It's not working now, maybe